Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Friday, June the 1st, 2012. Half the year is flipping gone. It's really not half the year. I guess it's the end of June when half the year is gone, but... We all know that on December 21st, 2012, nothing's going to happen. That's, that, that's what's going to happen. Oh wait, I know what's going to happen on December 21st, uh, 2012. It'll be, it'll be like a short time from then until Christmas, which is a great time of the year. And right around that time, we'll do the Christmas special again. It'll be awesome and we'll see our families and minds will not rise from the beyond and take your, take your tomatoes away or whatever it is that you think is going to happen. But what I'm looking forward to on uh, January 2013 is all of the hype that's been built up around it. Uh, instead of practical preparedness, which is what we talk about, uh, there will probably be a lot of really good stuff to buy on Craigslist and on eBay. I don't think it'll be quite the uh, the fire sale that we had after Y2K, uh, but uh, it might be it might be pretty decent in going into like March when people start wanting to do things like buy boats and all. Who knows what kind of generators will be on sale and other cool stuff. So we do have something to look forward to with uh, 2012, and hopefully uh, we can look forward to better times economically ahead. I know my my show yesterday was somber. I'm gonna have to do a show next week on the other way this can work out. Um, There is a potential that the false recovery I've been talking about for a long time will eventually happen, and because it really hasn't yet. This is not really the false recovery. I, I, you know, people have given me credit for for forecasting the the first the collapse and then the false recovery. I don't. This is a false recovery, but it's not really a recovery. People are still screwed everywhere. Um, so I think there is one more. Uh, let's load the tables up and wipe them out. The question is: Is there a is there a second dip to the recession before that? What does it look like? I don't know yet, but I'll give you some ideas next week on how that can play out. Today, though, today is the show that's all about you, the audience. This is the show where you've called in. Most of these calls are from about two weeks ago, and a couple of them are from last week. So if you called in more than three weeks ago and your call hasn't been on the air yet, you might want to call it back in. It's not necessary that you got screened out. There could have been a technical problem you don't know about, or I found you know 12 calls for the show, and I stopped looking at some point, and I start moving forward in time. So... Just know that the number that you call for this show, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. You do that, you leave your message in about two minutes or less, and then uh, I'll respond to you. If you do get cut off by the machine and you have just a few more moments of things to say, call right back and wrap it up, but don't abuse that privilege. It is a privilege. Uh, and remember, it is my 800 number, so uh, when you call it four or five times with the same call in a row... One of you knows who you are. Uh, you are running up the 800 bill on me. It's not that big a deal, but you know, I had one guy that called so often that I have this really nifty service. You guys ever need an 800 number service? You can do anything in the world you want to with. Go to a, a site called Call Eight, K A L L, the number eight dot com. Not a sponsor or anything, but I've been using their service for oh, I guess 10 years now, and you can do things like. Forward calls based on area code or the actual number. So I forwarded this guy back to himself so he'd stop calling. So every time he called, he got his own number. And uh, that did fix the problem. Anyway, before we get into your calls to the uh, Think Line, 866-65-THINK, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by their support of the show. Sponsor of the day number one today is BackyardFoodProduction.com. Hey, you want to turn your backyard into a food production machine? Check out what Marjorie down there in the uh, South 
South Central Texas area is doing. It's pretty dadgone awesome. She has a great DVD called Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm. Uh, I think it sells for in the $40 to $50 range now with a bonus DVD and stuff. It's definitely worth it. But when she first came on, it was like $25. And I said, hey, go get it now before she raises the price because she's selling it too cheap. And some people didn't think that would ever happen. And then it did. And they're like, wow, the price went up. Yeah. And people are still buying it like crazy. Why? Because it works. That's why. Because it'll tell you exactly what you need to do to become a food production machine and do that in your own backyard. So check them out today. BackyardFoodProduction.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Hey, look, you got a gun, right? Okay, good. You can defend yourself with it, right? You think you can. Now, here's what we, we've learned over the years with real-world situations, that people do not perform at their highest level of training when they are in a combat situation. That's a, that's a term that people use. You revert to your highest level of training. Actually, what they, they generally do is they result to instinct. Okay, And the instinctual level has been built by that highest level of training. But generally, people don't tend to perform, especially if they're not accustomed to combat scenarios, and most of us aren't and don't want to be. They don't perform the same way that they would uh, you know, if everything they knew was all hunky-dory and they were just running a time trial. So that makes the training even not less critical, more critical. You have to train to the point where you have the instinctual knowledge so ingrained in you that when things happen, you just act. And that's the kind of training you'll get from Fortress Defense Consultants. And if you want some consulting, because remember there's a consultant in there, you know, he would actually come out to your place and, and, and look at how to set up a more defensive system for your place. If you have your own range or you have property that you can shoot on, he'll come out to your, your property or your range and set up training in your local area if you can put together a small group of guys. Check him out today again, Fortress Defense Consultants. That's Frank Sharp Jr. Of course, he's also a member of our Council of Experts. Again, FortressDefenseConsultants.com. Actually, it's FortressDefense.com. He just sent me an email about that yesterday. It's Fortress Defense Consultants at FortressDefense.com. Check them out. All right, next up, remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I am on the jazz with permaculture right now. I have done six permaculture videos in six days that I think give you a better understanding of the design process, of earthworks, of polyculture, of permaculture ethics without the hippie crap shoved into it where we don't need it. If people want to do hippie stuff with it, that's awesome. Go do it, but just Don't shove it down everybody else's throat. Uh, this is Permaculture Nuts and Bolts 101 by Jack Spirico. It's on our YouTube channel and a lot of other great stuff there. Check it out. Uh, Facebook and YouTube, of course, I'm always sharing information on there that doesn't make it on the show as well just because of the volume of inf information. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts to 32 supporting vendors. It's a great deal. It pays for itself, and you support the show at 18.3 cents a day. Please consider joining the Member Support Brigade if you have not already done so. All right, um, with that, we're almost ready to start. Except I want to remind you guys, if I wanted to save America video that Dean Brock put out yesterday, I, I checked today, and it's on. You guys are awesome. It's got to be on 40 or 50 blogs already. Uh, it's in people's forums. It's been shared and shared and shared. I think the YouTube count was up to like 5,000 views, and I don't think that's accurate. I think YouTube has a big lag on their updates. I bet we're somewhere near 10,000 views on it already. But please keep sharing it. We've got a Friday afternoon here. We've got a weekend going through. Share this with your family, your friends, your coworkers. I think most people can enjoy it. I'm going to ask a favor of you guys, though. Um, 
and I know it's probably not this community that's the, the major offenders with this, but there's already the stupid crap of people calling each other names and it's all Agenda 21 and other crap like that. This video is not about Obama. It's not about Bush. It's not about Romney. It's about you. I say it straight in the video. Please refrain from posting that's, you know, the, the purely political stuff in there. And if somebody else does, don't engage them. Don't feed the trolls that want to do this. Ron Paul. I mean, I love Ron Paul, but this video is not about Ron Paul. It's not. It's about you. It's about what you do in your own backyard, in your own neighborhood, in your own family. I want it to stay that way. I don't want it to be a flame war. I know I'm probably asking for too much, and I don't mean from you guys. I mean, I'm asking for too much for people to actually listen in here, in the general population, in the Jonesites and what have you. Look, I understand that all those things are real and a problem, but my whole point is most of those problems, one guy said, monetary uh, policy is the key. Well, of course it is, but how are you going to change that today? You can't, but you know what you can change? Yourself. So try to keep that positive message, and if somebody brings up this other crap, just let it go. All right. With that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up. I know we went long today, uh, but I had a couple little extra things in there for you. Let's go ahead and take that first call. Hey, Jack. It's Dan from the frozen tundra of Minnesota. I was cleaning out my garage uh, a couple of days ago, and I found some old kerosene. Like, this stuff is probably 6 to 10 years old. I was just wondering... If there's anything that you know that I can do other than just dumping it out uh, to really use that uh, for anything, which uh, would bring up an interesting question if you've ever found uh, old kerosene or old gas or anything like that, uh, anything that that can really be used for as far as uh, cars, motors, anything like that. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, well, um, if you were worried about using this as fuel in a vehicle, because we can use in a pinch, though we're not supposed to because there's no motor fuels tax on a kerosene in, in a diesel motor, uh, especially with a mix, no real problems there. But that's not what the plan usually is for kerosene. Uh, because of that, I wouldn't be too concerned about this. If this was an old can of gas or an old can of diesel fuel, I'd say, do not, do not put that in your vehicle, uh, especially gasoline. Um, so what you have with Caro then is usually you're using it in something like a kerosene space heater. And I'd say just try and see if it works because the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to have to siphon it back out and not use it because it's going to smoke a lot or not burn well. So, I mean, with, with kerosene, I would, I would go ahead and get it used up uh, in this next coming winter, but I'd, I'd give it a shot. If nothing else, you can keep it around for if you need to start, uh, like a, 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 you know, like a campfire or something. You don't want to do it, you know, old school way with kindling and all. And you, uh, you know, and you can, you could do like, you know, test it and see how well it'll burn. Put a little bit on a rag, light it and see if it burns well. Uh, but my gut is it'll probably burn just fine for you. And, some of the inadequacies there really aren't that big a deal. It's an optimum, no, but I just, I just wouldn't sweat it. I'd give it a shot. Now, would I dump it into your, your, your fuel oil, you know, furnace and, and, and do that? No. Uh, would I try using it as diesel fuel in your old tractor? You know, no. Um, but would I go ahead and use it as, uh, as Caro or at least give it a shot? Yeah. And if it doesn't burn well, then you need to find a way to properly dispose of it. And you probably need to call your, like, your local city or whatever and say, I've got some old kerosene. What do I do? How do I get rid of it? Where can I turn it in? Where can I go pay to get it taken away? What, what have you? Um, cause you don't want to go dumping that crap on the ground. It'll destroy everything, but 
With kerosene, I just don't see the risk in giving it a shot. Now, if somebody knows that there's a problem with that, let me know. But I can tell you, I have used old kerosene. I don't know about 10 years, but we had a can that was found down in a basement. It had been there probably about six or seven years, and we had one of those kerosene space heaters, and we put that stuff in there, and we burned it. It didn't burn no different. It didn't burn no different at all. So it'll have a lot to do with how it was stored and what have you, but I wouldn't sweat it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Chris in Midland, Texas. I had taken your advice and planted radishes in my garden, uh, which did put out a lot of good flowers, and it did bring in some pollinators into the garden. Uh, unfortunately, it did bring cabbage flies, uh, or sorry, cabbage butterflies, uh, which, uh, of course, as you know already, they attack everything that seems like in the Brasius family. I'm not currently growing a lot of Brasius. I'm just growing uh, one uh, cauliflower, and that's it, and But I'm wondering if they're doing anything beneficial. I know that they're obviously going after flowers on the radishes, but I wonder if they may be helpful to other flowering plants like squash, for example. Um, if there is no beneficial factor, then I'm going to rip out the, uh, the radishes and, and, and get rid of these cabbage flies, or at least not give them incentive to stick around. Uh, anyway, I'd love to hear your comments on that and, uh, and other sorts of uh, plants that can be beneficial in one way but then may be negative in another. Thanks for your time. Bye. That's a good question, and it kind of misses the point of what you've got going on there. So this is what I'm hearing you say. You planted a whole bunch of radishes, and there are got flowers everywhere. Now, I'm going to tell you, once the flowers are gone, it's probably time to chop them down and, and compost them and what have you, or use them for mulch or whatever. But, okay, so i got all these radishes out there, and I'm only growing a little bit of other brassia. All the cabbage flies are all over the, uh, the, the radishes, and they're eating the radishes that I don't care about. Hmm, what do we call that? We call that a trap crop, by the way. And we, uh, radishes are often used for, for trap crops for exactly that. Cabbage flies or thrips uh, or flea, flea beetles are also tend to go and eat radishes that we just don't care about because you can grow a radish anywhere, anytime, anyplace. And you can grow and let them get huge and get all those flowers and everything. So I wouldn't personally remove them, especially if they're not attacking the one little bit of brassias that you're actually growing on purpose because they're busy over there. There's another thing we have to think about. We plant these things like radishes that we let go to seed and go to flower as predator habitat. Well, predator habitat has to have a couple different things. One, it has to have just a general attraction to the predators. They have to like the place. A lot of the predators are wasps and things like that, so they also like flowers and they like nectar. And sometimes it's that the, the parent likes the flower and the nectar and the larvae that feeds on the, on the prey is the actual predator. And we got kind of some of, some of sort of both, right? So one thing that we need for our predators to come set up shop and start doing their job for us to start killing the prey is prey. If you have no prey, there'll be no predators. We have a beautiful savanna over in Africa, and we could completely ban the hunting of lions on that savanna, but if there's no gazelles and zebras and elands and wildebeests and warthogs and stuff like that, you ain't going to see hide nor hair of a lion because there's nothing for them to live on. So to me, unless they're actually getting to a population problem where they're becoming a problem for you in other ways, the radishes are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. They're attracting the pest, they're holding them in that area, and they're setting them up for complete failure. Because unlike your vegetables, they can do a lot of damage too fast, and you do have to keep an eye on anything these things are going to feed on that you're trying to keep for yourself. But they're over there. They're over there eating, and radish, they can eat the hell out of it, and the damn things just keep going. They're very difficult 
uh, for the, the cabbage flies to really harm, right? They're a perfect food source for them because it can't really damage them because if you kill off your own food source, you're screwed. So it's, they're more designed to, to eat that than anything else. So now I've got this natural population of cabbage flies that are over in this little wilderness that I've created alongside of my garden, and they're in there doing their thing, and they're just waiting for something like a lacewing to come in and hammer them. So I'd keep an eye on it, but I wouldn't necessarily get rid of it. Now, here's another thing that you might be thinking. Well, if I let these jerks sit around here, then they're going to breed, and there's going to be more of them next year. Well, there could be some truth to that, but if right about the time the radishes are giving up the ghost on their flowers, you cut them down, shred them up, and compost them, you've composted the little jerks, and all the reproductive energy has been wasted. So this is this is a different way to maybe think than most people do. This has attracted something I do not want, therefore it's bad, whereas what I see is this has taken what you do not want and drawn it away from the place that you don't want that thing to be, put them in a collective population, and you've monocultured your pests for your predators. Now your predators can come in, they've got all this great flowers and habitat, and there's what they want to eat, yum. So I don't think you have a problem as far as is are the cabbage flies beneficial. Um, I, I don't know if they're much of a pollinator, so I don't think they're a directly beneficial in any way other than they are a smorgasbord for certain predators. All right, let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Jonah, uh, Long Beach, California. question is about... The great properties that are on United Country website, but they're, I, being a city person, I don't understand, and you could shed some light on this. How do septic tanks, wells with pumps, how do you get the electricity, what about garbage? I don't understand how all that works when you're in the country. I, I, I like the concept in the country, and there's some beautiful homes, but I'm worried about how do I get the water out of the well? Is the pump going to break? You know, I want to make sure my crap is flushed every day, I, garbage and all that. If you could shed some light on that mystery for me, I'd appreciate it and make me feel more comfortable about choosing a home in the country. Thanks, Jack. Well, the answer is it depends, right? I mean, that's that's really the answer because different areas will have different systems and scenarios and laws and regulations and and and, and, and solutions to these problems. The garbage one's pretty easy. You're going to find two different, maybe three different ways that garbage will be handled in rural communities. Sometimes in really rural communities, there'll be like a garbage drop-off point where they'll have a whole bunch of dumpsters and maybe a few dumpsters for certain recyclables and things like that. And once a week or so, you throw all your stuff in the back of your truck and you drive out there and you get rid of it. I've seen that recently just up in Montana, a little community called Lakeside. I mean, it's it's not even what you would call a town and that's 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 how their solution is because everybody's so spread out. It just doesn't make sense to have a garbage man drive around. That's the only place I've seen that so far, but I imagine it exists elsewhere. Where we live now, there it's it, it's not anything really that's a big deal at all. The what we have are great big rubber-made garbage cans, super giant, very tough ones that you pay pay for your service with. Um, with the county garbage disposal people, right? So they they take care of it. And they drive around and they have this truck and just like it lifts a dumpster, it lifts these cans from the side and they go through and, and pick everything up. So you have, the only issue you have is it's once a week and you can only have so much garbage before you run out of space for it. 
So that's that's another way that it can be handled, and that's usually they don't come to your front door. There's usually also a collection point, but it's much closer. And in, for, for instance, in ours, it's about a mile away. It's right where it goes, and it would probably be closer if uh, it wasn't where dirt and or where, where paved road met gravel. I think they decided on that as a stopping point. And all of the little, all you know, the, you know how many people live back there. You know, if you're, you know, because you can just count the garbage cans, and then they take it away. So that's that's another way garbage would be handled. And then when we lived in rural Pennsylvania, it was actually kind of cool. You looked up garbage collection services, and there were actually people that competed for your business. And they would say, you know, we pick up X number of bags uh, a week for X dollars a month, you know, as your limit. And there was like three or four companies that all did garbage collection in the area. And that was cool because you actually were dealing with a person instead of the government. So I've only ever seen that in one place, but that's another. But generally, there's always a garbage disposal system in place, and we should be trying to minimize our, our waste anyway. So that's, you know, that's the first part. Now, on wells and water. Wells can go bad, and the, the problem when your well goes, you know, something breaks with your well, is it's 100% on you. Nobody's coming until you call somebody and get them to come out there. And you may have a hard time finding plumbing companies that do work on wells. There's not a lot of them. Some of them do. And it's a good question that get answered before you buy a property. And generally, you find tons of people put them in, but not a lot of people fix them when they're broke. So you want to maybe find that out. You want to take a look at the well and see if there is anything that's kind of on the outdated side. And I didn't know this when we bought our place, but our well has the pump at the bottom. So there's a capacitor control box that's inside the well house, and it's about 90 bucks to replace, and it's not that big a deal, but we've had it go out twice in seven years. The problem is that that system is not really considered... Uh, current. It's considered an obsolete system. It's still not real hard to get those boxes. We bought two extras, um, so that if it does go bad again, you know, we can, we can fix it ourselves and it's not that big a deal to do. But I would, if I was buying a new house today, I would look for something where the pump is above ground. It's an easier system to work on. Current parts are available, but a well, You know, how do you get the water and the electricity to the well? If you're buying a house that's already set up, it's not your problem. It's already done. You just want to check what was done and was it done properly, and that'll be part of your your property inspection, your pre-purchase inspection as well. Anyway, so you want to make sure you use an inspection company that. And if you're using, you know, if you're in the area where there's a lot of wells, you, you probably aren't going to have a problem. Make sure your inspector knows what the hell he's doing when it comes to looking at wells, uh, because it is it is an important issue. Uh, you want to make sure the well house is in good repair and things like that, and the way that the powers run out there makes sense. Septic, again, septic is something, if you're buying a house that already has septic, it's not your problem. That will be part of your pre-purchase inspection. Uh, your inspector will want to pull the cap off the uh, off the, the uh, septic tank, make sure that everything's functioning right, the leach field, etc. And I've never seen a home inspection done where that's not part of it. Um, so if you are buying an existing place, it ain't that big a deal. It's it, it, it's it's all kind of set up already. If you're going to build, it's not a huge deal, but what you need to do is you need to know what permitting costs are, how hard it is to get a permit, and what the cost is to put them in, and what your real estate agent tells you, oh, it's X and it's Y. It is not. You need to contact companies to do it. 
And you also need to look at their availability. There's times of the year when, yeah, the well guy says, yeah, your area is easy. I know your area. No problem. We're going to have to go about 200 feet, and it's going to be, it, it's not hard stuff to work with. And I can come out there and I can do your well for $4,000. There's a place where the guys are say, that's a terrible place. We're going to have to go down tremendously far down, and it's going to be a lot of rock, and it's going to be nine grand for a well. And, and you're like, either way, you're like, oh, well, I'll just build that into the cost of construction and development until the guy says, yeah, but we're real busy right now and I can't get to you until October. Right? I mean, they're, they're, so that's the, if you're building, you need to not just look at the cost, but the dates of availability of the people in the area. Sometimes it can come next week, but you need to know that before you start working. Uh, septic tanks usually are a lot easier to get done. It's less specialized. Uh, you know, there's plenty of backhoe operators out there with nothing to do right now. So, uh, if a guy has a lot of business, he can bring in a backhoe operator and tell him in a day what he needs to know to be able to dig a, dig a proper, uh, setup for a septic. So it's easier to get done. It usually costs less money, but you gotta look at the land. If it's a lot of rock, whenever you have rock, your cost goes up. But in general, if you're buying a house that's already there and it's got well, it's got septic, it's got electricity, uh, it, it, it's already got that stuff. It's just not an issue, except the maintenance is your responsibility. If your sewer goes bad in the middle of the suburbs, the city will fix it eventually. Okay. If your water pipe breaks, the city will fix it. If your well breaks, you are going to have to pay to fix it. And it's it's it, there's some stuff on wells that's pretty specialized. And you know the the day where everybody knew how to do everything is kind of gone, and you can learn that stuff. But the problem with a well. When you're jacking around with a well, if you don't know electronics, you can fry your ass because there's electricity there. And that's why I pretty much don't do it, right? Because if it can kill me and I'm not really, you know, 100% certain of what I'm doing, I kind of leave it alone. That's kind of a survival tenet, right? If you see a snake on the ground and you don't know snakes well and it could be venomous or not be venomous, don't mess with it, right? If you're an expert at it and you know that's a corn snake, you can go pick it up and if it bites you, you don't really care. If you thought it was and it ended up being a copperhead, you got a problem. So that's how I look at my well system. There's some things on it that are pretty easy. And basically the way I know how to replace that controller box is when the guy came out and replaced the first one, explained it all to me, he showed me what to do. I just shut the daggone power off at the main breaker, check it with a volt-ohm-meter, and, and, and then replace it and plug it back in and fine. right? But, but you know, I don't think I would have even been willing to do that. Uh, so those are the things to think of. And this is the other stuff. High-speed Internet, probably ain't available. Going to put you on satellite or, or cellular. Check and see what's available first. I know that satellite doesn't really... It, we love it when it's working. Let me put it to you that way. But we've had two major outages with it. So those are some other things to look at. But it's not really the problem that you might think it is. Uh, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Tommy calling from Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm calling basically just to ask a simple well, question about... Um, Expiration dates in regards to like a bug out bag or just kind of storage and long term storage. Now I know some people have um, vitamins or they'll have you know some aspirin or any type of medicine or things like that stored away or even some food as far as little protein bars. But what happens when those expire? Do they kind of cycle through and then like a few months before it's expired they take those and restock or kind of do some items you're allowed to just kind of forget about the um, the expiration date. Just trying to get your pain on that. And also, I love the show. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. And I'm hope, hoping soon to hear some things about some long-term food storage, maybe some dehydration or, or things like that. So just 
I appreciate it. Appreciate what you do. Thank you very much. You have a great day. Bye-bye. Let's start out with the medications. We know that the expiration dates on medications are basically bullshit and that nothing actually bad happens with medication stored for a long time. It just goes down in its ability to be effective. So you might have to take more of it to get a therapeutic result, which you can take what you're supposed to and see if you're getting a result and add a little bit if it's been a long time and you're in a crisis situation. So we shouldn't sweat it too much. But that said, um, the best way to store food, medication, anything that's perishable, batteries, you name it, is in a cool, dry location. Our bug-out bags are often left in, like, cars or lockboxes in trucks where it's hot and maybe moist. So the, the potential for those items to expire uh, near, at, or even before their expiration date is higher. Not necessarily it's going to happen, but it's higher than the stuff that's well-stored in our pantries and our basements and things like that. So we need to take bug-out bag rotation a little bit more seriously. Now, here's the good news. If you're storing enough items in your bug out bag to last you two months, you're probably not actually dealing with a bug out bag. You're dealing with a main kit. And that main kit should be more of a grab and go kit that's designed for long term sustainability and an extended bug out. Your bug out bag is designed to be a three to maybe at max six day kit. What does that mean? That means your your MREs, your protein bars, your medications, and anything else that has an expiration on it uh, is in not that big a supply. So what we need to be doing is about, I'd say, once a year, let's try to use whatever is in there that we can and replace it with something new, a minimum of once a year. Um, it, it just makes sense to do. Now, uh, stuff like MREs, you, could, you can maybe say every two years. This is a big thing that you should do. Take and put most things like that into a vacuum seal bag and with a black Sharpie right on there the date that you put it in there in big, giant, easy-to-read letters, easier than a little expiration date that's on the package somewhere. That way, when you go through it, you know, you're once or twice a year where you're trying to pull stuff out and get it used, it's real easy and real obvious what you need to put a priority on using first. With MREs, you can, don't have to really do that. You can just go ahead and, and write on the bag. But, again, on MREs in your bug-out bag, it makes a lot of sense to field strip them. Uh, I'll put the link to ITS Tactical's uh, video on that today. It saves so much space, so much easier to carry three or four of those in a bug-out bag if you field strip uh, them down uh, a bit. And if there's some of the items in there you think it might be useful, then you can just package enough, you know, one use of those items, and there's a lot of space to be saved in an MRE package. So I'll add that to it. But that's, that's really the answer is just simply rotating it and take the expiration times a bit more seriously in your bug out bag, unless you know it's it's sitting in a, a basement somewhere, then it's pretty much like anything else down in that basement. But the reality is, rotating our materials out of our bug out bag should be a lot easier than rotating them out of our deep pantries because there's less stuff there. Uh, so that's that's what I that's what I do, and I might do it a little more than I have to, but it just to me it makes sense because it's so easy to do. I don't keep a lot of stuff in there that I wouldn't be happy to eat any given day. So with that being said, it's it's pretty easy for me to pop a bunch of jerky out of there, pop some jerky back in, right? And then yeah, that's that that's one example of something I keep. I try to go with the high protein stuff, and I do have a bit of carbohydrate load in my bug out bag because it is an energy source in a stressful situation. But I try to stick even even now uh, with 
just about all my preps, as much of the paleo mindset as I can, because that's what my body's used to now. That's what my body functions best on. But in a real high endurance situation, carbohydrates have a place. And uh, so you can you can include some of those, or if you're you know not a paleo person, you can do whatever you like with that. I don't tell people how to live, but constant rotation once or twice a year of all perishables is a good idea. Let's take another call. Hey Jack, Sean in Connecticut. I've got a question for you. What do you think about setting up a trip line around uh, vegetable gardens, berry patch, apple trees, that kind of thing, to deter uh, deers? or uh, black bears um, coming around. Uh, so I'm thinking a trip line tied up to a bunch of aluminum cans or something that makes a lot of noise, scares them away. Thanks, Ben. It might be fairly effective because you've got a line down low where the animal's not likely to uh, to, to see the line, and they when they hit that, they hear the noise and all, and it may scare them away. A black bear probably isn't going to care. I mean, once he's figured out that there's a big patch of berries and there's some noise, might send him back a bit, but he's probably going to st- step back and take a look and see if anything's going on and come back in and he'll probably figure it out. Deer might be more effective with. Some things I've seen done that have been somewhat effective is uh, I've seen some of my neighbors hang up those plastic bags like come from Walmart on a string and also hang up tin pie pan plates and uh, the wind moves those around and hang like uh, like a plastic spoon next to the, the pie plate. And the wind's constantly, you know, at, at different times of day moving, and it makes all this noise even when nothing's there. And they've said that's worked really good sometimes, and other times not so much. And I would think it probably works better when it's windy. I mean, it just seems like that. And even the pie pans without uh, anything else for them to bang into, those aluminum pans, when they're blown around, they make a lot of noise. Uh, so that's another thing I've seen. I'll, I'll tell you that the easiest answer to uh, a deer problem is a fence. And people say, well, you know, you need a fence big enough to keep a deer out. No, you need a fence big enough to keep a dog in. If you have a dog that you're okay, at least at night, making kind of an outside dog, at least during the, you know, the, the, the garden season, uh, and I know people, a lot of people don't want to make their dogs outside dogs, and I understand that completely. Our dogs sleep at the foot of our bed. But the reality is that if you want a, a, a absolute bulletproof system for deer, a dog inside the fence is pretty dadgone bulletproof. Uh, they'll chase deer. Deer don't like dogs. Uh, the deer will real quickly learn that there's dogs there and uh, tend to go away. You can do some stuff with some electric fencing and all. But deer, man, I've seen deer jump fences, go under fences. Um, I watched a deer one time. This was a buck. and I don't know how the hell this deer fit under there. There was like a nine-line fence. Many of you will know what I'm talking about. Many won't, but it's what exactly what it sounds like. It's a fence with nine straight lines, and it had barb at the top, and it was just lines across the you know, the rest of the way uh, with T-posts. And the lower line looked to me like maybe a foot at the most. It's probably a half a foot. And that damn deer... I mean, maybe, you know, I never actually went down to where he crossed under. Maybe there was a spot that had been worn out or whatever. But he came walking up to that fence, and I'm like, well, he's going to jump it. And all of a sudden, just underneath, and you know, I mean, he looked like he went through there like he was oiled up or something. And I, 
So I I don't see fencing deer out to be very much of a valid thing unless you're going to be putting up a a high fence like a game ranch fence. And instead of keeping game in, you're keeping game out. That's that's about the only way uh, to deal with that. But a a normal fence that will keep your dog in, that'll work. Some other things you can do are natural hedge deterrents. I did a video when we were in Montana about using plants like wild roses and stuff like that. And what I noticed there was that the deer came in and they ate all the hips off the wild rose plants except the high ones that were in the center because they were like, screw that, I'm not going in there. Even a deer didn't want to go in there. And uh, those things are pretty nasty, so that can be a deterrent. With deterrent hedges and things like that, then the important thing is along that hedge, to plant things like clovers and sacrificial greens and stuff like that, things you're willing to let the deer have, and then put those in a browse path that lead away from your property to your neighbor's property who's too dumb to put up the type of thing, and then the deer becomes somebody else's problem. You're not trying to so much put them out as lead them away. Give them what they want, give them a barrier that they prefer not to cross and leave them away. But the simple answer to all the deer problems is a fence, with a dog inside it, especially like a lab, a German Shepherd, any of the big uh, working dog breeds. When they see a deer, man, they're just hyped up, and they go and, I mean, it, it it's 100% effective. Is it 100% against black bears? Probably not, but it's probably dadgone effective. The only time I've seen black bears become a problem is when people break the one damn rule about bears that we always need to follow. Don't feed the freaking bears. Black bears are very, very cautious animals. Far more wary, usually, than deer and, and what have you. But when people start to feed them, they have a tendency to almost become placid and, and fearless of man, and generally, fortunately, not quite harmful toward man. They can be, but, I mean, it's they're, they're very similar to hogs in that way. A wild hog is an elusive creature, but bring a pig into a, an area where it's constantly being fed and it becomes domesticated rel- relatively quickly, black bears kind of sort of do the same thing. If you have a lot of black bear problems, then odds are that you have somebody feeding the damn thing. And, you know, it can be problems with deer feeders and all. Last year, you saw what happened my deer feeder. If you look at my YouTube channel, a freaking bear shoved it over and smashed it to pieces and then laid in the corn and rolled around in it and, and, and came back every night for like four or five weeks, ate only two or three bites of corn and then rolled around it because he didn't want anybody else to have it. He's basically being a big pig. Chased all my damn deer off. So, uh, unfortunately, that, that bear... Uh, would have probably been very, very shootable in the early bear season here, but I was in Colorado at the Self-Reliance Expo for that. It's only a two-day season, and after that, he kind of disappeared. I don't, I don't think anybody else got him because a small community, we would have heard about it, but uh, that's, that's kind of my thoughts on bears. But on the deer, dog and defense. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's John in West Virginia. I know it's been a while. I was going to ask you, uh, I've made some bad decisions in the past and been in trouble with the law and this and that and uh with the fact that I'm a survivalist I owe a whole lot and probably got more uh, attention than I really need to and I've grown up and realized that's more attention than I want so I'm just wondering how I could change my image to where I don't seem like such a nut and such a bad guy in the Law enforcement. Uh, appreciate all you do, man. Well, it, it has been a long time since uh, 
since you uh, were here, John, so I'm glad to hear from you. I was worried them zombies really got you on that Halloween episode. It's been so long since I heard from you. But, uh, uh, you know, it's an interesting question. And the main reason I'm going to play it is I'm sure there's other people that have to deal with the same situation. And here's here's the deal. It's a little bit hard for me to give this advice because I'm what you call a nonconformist. I don't like to conform to what society expects of me. Um, it just so happens that a lot of like my day-to-day look and, and, and how I present myself in society happens to, to conform. But where it doesn't conform, it doesn't conform. And if you don't like it, kiss my ass. That's how I feel. I really do. And I, some people love that about me. And some people hate that about me. There's people that have listened to this show that have gotten that, that vibe and thought that's awesome. And there's people that have listened to this show, got that vibe one time and said, this guy's a jerk and left. And, I find that kind of closed-minded, by the way. I mean, I think we're all different people. And sooner or later, if you listen to anybody long enough, they're going to piss you off. But in your situation, you, you 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 almost have to get into a little bit of conformity mode. So simple things like how you dress and, and your personal appearance, even though it's not fair, when you already have a track record, it doesn't help. So I don't know if there's an issue there. I, I kind of picture you as a, as a big old guy with a beard and a bib overall sitting out on your porch, and that's probably completely wrong. Uh, and usually when we only have a voice, I mean, you know, and I, I think that dude, whoever that, that, that dude is cool, by the way. I hope you don't take that the wrong way. Uh, but I think that maybe looking a little bit less aggressive is, is one way. I wouldn't use the word survivalist again for the rest of my life if I were you. Um, if I talked about it at all, I would talk about being a prepper, and I wouldn't even talk about that much, especially with law enforcement, especially with law enforcement who are already aware of who you are. Um, another thing that you could do, if it fits your belief system, get involved with a church, um, and don't don't do it don't do it like these assholes do in uh, in prison where they say I'm safe so they can get out. But if it fits, if you if you believe that way. And get involved, not just showing up on Sundays, but actually doing stuff so that people get to know you. Because um, I think you're a great guy. The, the calls you've made and the, and the contributions you've made to this community tell me you're a good guy. We've all done stupid crap in our past. Some of us did more stupid things than other people. And some of us that have really great reputations, uh, we did things that were even dumber. We just didn't get caught. And then we grew up and figured it out the way that you have. So a lot of times there's people that have had these troubled pasts and you could put them right next to somebody who's had an even more troubled past, but the the second guy, even though he did more things wrong, never got caught, so he has no stigma. So it's your stigma. I don't mean it the wrong way, but you've earned it, and I think you know that because you did the stuff. It's not that other people that got away with it didn't really earn it too, but you earned it, you have it. So that's a couple things. Now, I don't know anything about the city you live in, but if it was a smaller town with a smaller police force, I'd start talking to your law enforcement officers, just just talking to them and just being nice to them and letting them realize it. You know, because most of those guys are not super trooper, jackbooted thug morons. Most of them aren't. And the smaller the town, the more that's true. And most of those guys would love nothing more than to see people that used to be problems be part of solutions. So that might be, but you have to make these choices for yourself because you're a grown man and it's your life. And, and your situation may be dramatically different than I think it is. When I hear you and you talk about your dog and your back porch and all, I see you kind of living in the mountains of West Virginia somewhere. For all I know, you live in Charleston. And I think that makes a difference. Um, then there always is kind of the nuclear option. And the nuclear option would be to move. And that may not fit for you. But you, sometimes you don't have to move very far. Uh, sometimes if you have a reputation 
it's kind of maybe like with county PD or whatever. And if you it, now if there's some baggage there, like probation, parole, whatever, then you have to talk to whoever's in charge of that for you and see what you know what's allowable and what's not. But some you know, and if there's jobs, just like anybody else. But sometimes just a move. Sometimes just a little bit of a move, you know, to get where people just don't know who you are, and you start with a fresh slate. Um, if there's other community, if you know, church isn't a thing for you, and it's not for me, right? So that's why I said don't, you know, I would never go to a church just so that I can improve my image with people. Uh, I, I think that's totally the wrong reason for being there. And the people that go, please don't try to fix me. I'm not broken. I know what I'm doing, and I'm happy the way I am, and I'm happy for you, and I totally support you. But maybe if that's not your thing, then are there other things that you can get involved with? If you're a veteran, get involved with the VFW. If there's volunteer firefighter, you know, firefighting, go get involved with that if you're allowed to. If there's any kind of clubs or activities, you know, get involved in those. If you have a felony conviction, and I'm not sure if you do, but it kind of feels like you might, some of those things are then off limits to you. And, you know, if, if that's the case, then you have to find the things that aren't. But here's what I believe. I believe that every person that's ever done wrong, once they've fulfilled their obligation to repay that debt, is deserving of a second chance, unless that wrong with something so heinous that they shouldn't be released anyway. So I would put like, you know, people that have molested children in that category and no that's not you, right? People that have gone in and murdered a whole family because they thought it was something fun to do. Those people I'm sorry, I don't even know why they're they're in a cell instead of in a, in a hole in the ground. But just about everybody else, if if the society has said, you know, you did this and you got to be on, on probation or you have to go to, to, to jail, but when you get out, you're going to be on parole and you're going to be on parole for, and you've done everything you've been asked to do. Once you've done that, I think that people need to just go, okay, until you prove yourself not trustful again, you've done it. Because let me tell you something for those of you that have the lock them up, throw away the key mentality. First of all, it doesn't fix problems. It just doesn't. Uh, again, there's people that that's a minimum of what should be done, but they're a very small percentage of the people that are in our prison system today. And if you if you go through that type of thing with with legal service, and you come out the other side, and you complete things like probation or parole all the way through, and you don't get yourself in trouble again, you got to want to do it. It, it. It's it, it's not like it's just easy. It's not like you just fill out a coloring book and they go, okay, you're done. Um, so when people do that, we need to respect it. And I think that the other side of it, though, is when the guy looks like he's still part of that, even though he's not, it hurts him. And that's not fair, but it is reality. So if you want to change the perception, sometimes you have to change the appearance. So if you have your arms all tatted up and everything and a ponytail and all, maybe a, 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 a little bit of a cleaner looking haircut and occasionally wear some long sleeve shirts when it's, you know, uh, when it's possible and losing things like excessive. And I don't know, John, I have no idea what you look like, you know, but if you look like a hell's angel, people think you're a hell's angel is the way I'm going to put it. But I think the biggest thing you can do is get involved because people will judge people first on their appearance. But I'll tell you what gets past appearance really quick is their actions. Because you can look like a really great guy, and if your actions show that you are a sleazebag, people figure it out and they don't want anything to do with you, even if you wear a three-piece suit, John Edwards. Um, and if you are, look like a great big, you know, bully, mean-ass biker, but you're willing to go help children and you do that, 
with groups like, you know, I was part of a group we had down in Panama called the Outriders. And some of those guys, that's exactly what they look, they look like a hell's angel. But you know what? They, 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 they brought those kids presents every year on those motorcycles and people understood them better. So what you do and how you say things is really important and how you looks a little bit important. So it might be a place to work on. I, you know, I'm working from a blank slate. I know nothing of you, but your voice, but I know you're a good hearted man. So let people see it. And I think that's the biggest thing you need to do. Hey, Jack, this is Mel down in Arkansas. We are having a bit of a family argument, bit of a question for you to help us clarify. Any possible uses for the sweet gum tree, or is it just a invasive species? Great-grandparents have told us how they used to use the inner bark to create a chewing gum of sorts. I know that it is a very wet wood, so it uh, it's hard to dry and use as a timber or a lumber. Any uses for this uh, invasive species called the sweet gum tree? Thanks, Fox. Ah, the sweet gum, the spiky little demons that hurt your feet if you walk out in your bare feet and make you angry uh, and grow like weeds, big giant weeds. Okay, so one use is you can make gum out of the, the resin. That's, that is a use. Um, there's not a tremendous number of uses for them, but I can give you just a couple. One, if you're a smoker and you're rolling your own cigars, they make a really good thing to uh, to, to close the cigar up, the, the gum, especially the end cap. Uh, it actually makes a cigar really enjoyable to smoke, to have a little bit of sweet gum on it. If you want to know what that experience is like, and you are a cigar smoker, there's a cigar brand called Baccarat, like the game. And that's exactly how they put their end cap on is with sweet gum. And, you know, you, you trim it off or put a hole in it and you smoke that. I'm not a big – I don't think smoking's a good idea, but I do smoke a cigar about once every month, once every other month. And I figure there's enough toxins in the world. That's not going to put me over the edge. And I do like that cigar for that reason. So there's there's one, and that's you can you don't need a lot of sweet gum trees to be able to do that. But that would be uh, that would be one kind of uh, you know historically accurate use of the material uh, with a very very common American commodity of tobacco. I do have a better use for them, and it involves chopping them down. And Dave uh, from AllThingsPlants.com and formerly of Dave'sGarden.com has been using sweet gum to make hugelkultur beds, and he says they do an amazing job. You end up having to cut more of them down and put more of them in every couple of years because they break down really fast, but that's part of why they do a great job, and there's lots of them available. So that's the best use I know of for a sweet gum tree. Um, their, their wood is not really valuable as timber. It's just not. Uh, it does burn okay. Especially like campfire burning and stuff like that, it, you know, it does need to be dried out a bit. It, it, it does take a little bit longer, but it does burn okay. Um, again, more of the outside campfire stuff, so it's, it's okay for that. I don't have a lot of use for them, frankly. Um, but if I had trees and I was going to selectively harvest some trees, and the primary reason I was going to harvest those trees is to bury them and turn them into hugelkultur mounds, I would go with sweet gums first. And Dave uh, Winninger, his results have been very, very positive doing just that. So I'm sorry I can't give you more uses for them, but I'll tell you what. This is a great one for community crowdsourcing. There's about 45,000 people now, somewhere 40 to 45,000 daily downloads of this show. That's a lot of freaking people. Maybe somebody out there in the audience knows another use for a sweet gum tree. 
I'm not going to say they're completely useless because I just gave you a couple uses for them. So if you know of a good use for sweet gum or a way to make it usable in a way that we don't think it's usable, post a uh, link or post a comment in today's show notes, episode 913. And if I get a few of them and they seem legitimate, I'll share them on the air in a future episode. So if anybody wants to uh, start the Save the Sweet Gums Fund or something like that, you're going to have to convince me that there's uh, some more redeeming qualities than being usable as hygge culture material. I guess here I can tell you myself would be it's a rapid-growing tree that produces a lot of biomass that rapidly breaks down. So it's a good pioneering species in a permaculture uh, forest system as a support species. It can constantly be coppiced and cut down, put to the ground as mulched, and over and over and over again. You don't care if you kill them, and they always grow back, and they always grow fast. So I guess we could use them as a biomass uh, uh, unit in when we're trying to rebuild soils. So that, that could be a place, except they do have that kind of invasive nature. But understand this about invasive species. An invasive species has to capitalize on a space and a niche. If there's something else already there, it's not going to be a problem. We get sweet gums going invasive when we have places where the forests aren't managed, and we have these big open glades and nobody puts anything else there, and then whatever's the most optimistic species takes that space. And frankly, that space usually needs to be occupied. And they're not really invasive. In many instances, they're actually quite reparative. Um, and eventually, they will success themselves out. It's just a fairly large, long-lived tree. It takes a long time to do that. Um, but usually, they do kind of go, you know, forests eventually will success. The problem is that none of us have been alive long enough to truly see a forest go into climax stage. We, it takes hundreds of years. We're trying to accelerate it with permaculture design, but it still takes to true climax stage is is quite a while to get there. Let's uh, let's take another call. Well, let's hold on here. I'd real quick just out of curiosity wanted to see if there's anything out there on sweet gums, and I found a, um, a PDF. I'll put a link to the show notes from Virginia Tech, and it says that sweet gum has been traditionally used as a furniture-grade lumber. The sapwood has a nice white color with a pink tint. The heartwood color is variable and ranges from light reddish brown to dark reddish brown, resembles cherry. The wood frequently has a nice interlocked grain, making it highly attractive for furniture. The tree has a straight trunk, making it ideal for veneer. The logs are sliced to make furniture-grade veneers or used in everything from overlays and furniture to instrument components. The logs can be peeled to make hardwood plywood. Had no idea. So there is some timber value. They have some medicinal value. Uh, they also have been used in reforestation and land reclamation projects due to its relatively fast growth and high resilience to insect attack. Trees are ideal for these types of projects. Trees are being used heavily in land reclamation of former phosphorus and zinc mines. As it grows, sweet gum also fixes nitrogen in the soil, provides large areas of shade. The species is a great choice for reforestation on acidic soils as an agroforestry and agroforestry species. So there's some uses. There's some more on this. I will put a link to uh, this particular PDF for you in today's show notes. Now let's go ahead and take that next question. Hey, Jack. This is Tommy calling from Nevada. Um, I am calling to get right to the point. I'm calling to ask you a question about storing batteries for long-term purposes, whether it be for bug out bags or just an emergency kit prepping in the house. If you have things like walking talkies, for example, or flashlights, and you just want to store batteries long term and they're out of the boxes already and without them, um, without having any problems with, you know, anything as far as storage problems or anything like that, I'm just curious to find out your information about how to 
I had a store, uh, had a store of batteries long term. Thank you. I love what you do with the show and hope to hear from you. Bye-bye. All right, this question goes right in with the earlier question about bogs that bobs and the uh, and the answer is rotating your stock with your batteries that you're storing in your bob. The best thing that you can do is make sure that it's not exposed to too much air and too much moisture and too much heat, and that's how we get batteries and cause corrosion and things like that. And there's two things to look at. One is your extra batteries. Easy answer: vacuum seal. Put a date on them, and when you're going through your bob, make sure you pull some of them out and use them and put some fresh ones back in there. That's that's the easy answer, and I would say that about a year of storage on your extra battery is absolute maximum because it's not an ideal storage area. I would also say that about any, like if you have radios that have batteries in them, flashlights that have batteries in them, stuff like that in your bob, once every six months at maximum, and it's probably better to do once every 90 days, so I can't say I religiously do it, take those components out. They should be easy access components along with the medical supplies. Should be some of the first things you can get to is your electronics and your medical supplies and your bob. You should have it packed that way. One, because you need to, to, to do a maintenance on them a little bit more, and two, because there's things you're likely to need, like a flashlight, need to be easily accessible. Get those batteries out of those electronics, put them into whatever you use day-to-day, and put fresh batteries in there. Well, the last thing you want is to open up your bob, pull out a flashlight, turn it on, and it doesn't work. Not just because the batteries are dead, because when you open it up to put those fresh batteries in there, it's all corroded and the electronics are shot. So that's, that is the bigger thing that I'm concerned about, is making sure that the stuff that is inside you know, electronics are taken out and changed at least once every six months. Especially if you do what you're supposed to do with a bob, which is keep it near you at all times. If it's sitting locked in a truck box and you live in Louisiana or something like that and it's humid all the time, that, that's hard on batteries. And it's hard on batteries inside your electronics. And some of the stuff's expensive. You have know, good quality flashlights and things like that are expensive. So uh, definitely replace the ones that are in the electronics. And hopefully you have other things you can use them for. Uh, and get them into those other devices and get them, go ahead and get them used up so you're not just wasting them. All right, with that, let's take a uh, another call. Hi, Jack. This is Alan in North Jersey. I've been a fan since about episode 30. Uh, my question is, what do you think of the Kimber 1911 with the 22 long rifle conversion kit as a first handgun? Um, in my state, I need to file a separate permit for each handgun. And being a new gun owner, I was thinking that a 22 pistol would be um, an ideal first gun to spend time at the range, handgun to spend time at the range with. And initially I was thinking of an MP22, and I was, uh, I was concerned that I might need, you know, a more suitable personal defense round um, later on. So I was looking at the Kimber 1911 with the conversion kit, um, and I was wondering if this platform could cover both of those areas, allowing me to train with the 22 ammo and having the option of the 45 stopping power. Um, with the same frame that I'm going to be spending um, time at, a lot of time at the range with, um, taking a few courses. Um, basically, um, I'm concerned with getting a 45, um, just because the cost of ammo would decrease the amount of time train that I'd spend training. Um, but I also see some synergy stockpiling 22 long rifle for training, and then having the option to, you know, go hunting for small game with the 22 long gun. Um, so it would add, you know, some decent flexibility to my prep. Um, you know, all of this sounds good to me in theory, but I was hoping an experienced gun owner could point out some of the disadvantages of going down this road. Um, you know, such as will I spend, end up spending, end up with a lower quality 22 and 45, 
Um, is there a risk of jams with the conversion kit? Um, the primary deterrent from me getting a second pistol is the bureaucracy involved in getting the, the permit, which, you know, basically time missed from work, and then, you know, the cost of the pistol itself. Um, thanks for your answer, Jack. Yeah, why do we have to have this freaking problem in the first place? Don't worry, man. I'm going I'm to give you my, my thoughts. It just bugs the shit out of me. I mean, if you're going to... Why do you need a different permit for a different gun? I guess this is California or Illinois. I'm, I'm thinking, I don't know. Let me. I'd love to hear from you in the, the comments section, dude. I'd like to know what state has a stupid-ass law. And I'm just so glad I live in a place where we don't have to deal with this crap. All right, so let me, let me give you my, my opinion on this. There's only one major disadvantage. And the only major disadvantage that you're going to have with doing this is when the 22 slide is on the, on the gun, it's not a 45. That's it. So if it's going to be like a home protection gun, and it, God knows you probably can't even get a carry permit if, uh, if, if you're living in a state where you have to get a permit for every different freaking pistol, but assuming you can carry it, um, then what you need to do is whenever you're going to use it as a 22, Do the conversion at the range. It's really not hard to do. They're, they're pretty quick to do, and you'll get very familiar with your gun by doing that, so that's actually an advantage. But while it's a .22, it's a .22, right? And and if you can kill it with a .45, you, if you can kill it with a .22, you can kill it with a .45. Not always the same thing the other way around. .22 actually is, is far more lethal than most people realize, but it's not an ideal carry self-defense round, and making the case for it is rather difficult to do. Um, in spite of the fact that it's killed a hell of a lot of people. Um, so that's that's one side of this, and that's about the only disadvantage. Will it make your .45 less reliable? The Kimber .45-1911 is a pretty damn good frame, and uh, it's going to be as reliable as it is whether you put a .22 slide on it for a while or not in, in, in barrel. It's not going to change anything when it's in the .45 mode. Uh, and I've done... I have a, a, a 22 long rifle conversion kit for, uh, mine's more of a universal one for all 1911s, so it's probably, what you're buying is probably going to be the same. It's probably made for the Kimber, but I mean, if it's a standard, uh, frame, it, it should work on just about anything. And, and it works rather well, and occasionally it does get a jam or two in the 22 mode. That's not bad. If you're practicing with the 22 and you get jams, you get to, you get to train on correcting malfunctions. There's nothing wrong with that at all, and it is a lot more affordable. Now, if you're willing to deal with the bureaucracy and you really wanted a .22 and a .45 in the same frame, I cannot recommend highly enough, after having bought one myself and now shot a lot of rounds through it, uh, the GSG 1911, which is a .22 uh, handgun. I'll put a link in a review on uh, gundigest.com for it today. I love shooting that gun. I love shooting it, and I love the fact that I don't have to convert anything over and back. Because what inevitably happens is you take that .45 to the range, and you put the .22 slide on it and, and everything, and, and then you shoot it, and you're tired, and it was a long day, and you want to go, you know, I'll do it at home. Well, guess what? Now you're going home with a .22 instead of a .45. Now, if, if in your case, if you can't carry, it doesn't matter if it's locked in the trunk of the car in a case anyway. But for the person who's using it as a carry gun, it is nice that the frames, the, not just the same style and the same dimensions, it's the same damn frame. And there's, there's, there's something to be said for that. But it is the fact that you have to do it. So would it work for you? Fine. Can I give you any reason not to do it? No, I can't. 
can I can I tell you that it would be more ideal to have a dedicated 22 and a dedicated 45? Yes, it, it would. It probably wouldn't cost much more. I'm betting that conversion kit for the Kimber is probably right about the same price as the GSG, but you don't need another permit. The only way I can see making this work is if you have the funds and it's no problem to buy them both at one time, can you get the two permits at the same time? And I'm thinking no, but if you could, and basically consult, you know, that would be the time to go ahead and do it. Um, but I, I don't have any problems with your plan at all. I think it's a good plan. I think you're making the most out of what you have to deal with, and I think that you are better off firing 500 rounds a month practicing with 22 than only practicing with 50 rounds of 45 because that's what you can afford to do. And the 45 rounds are expensive, and it's why. As a person that I absolutely love the 1911, I, I mean I love it. I have a long-term love affair with that with that gun, and I think the 45 ACP and the 1911 were made for each other because they were. Uh, but I shoot a lot more 22 because you know it's it's expensive and it's fired and it's gone, and uh, the muscle memory, the functioning, all of that can be done with the 22. So. I have no problems at all with your plan. Just make sure that you get the fact that it's a 22 while it's a 22. And that really means as soon as you're done with it, you want to put it back into 45 mode. And go out and do some shooting and some practicing with it in 45. And let me give you a little piece of advice. Make sure you're firm on your grip when you're firing it in 45 mode, especially if you've just gone and fired, you know, I don't know, you know, a couple hundred rounds of 22 because you, you tend to get a little bit looser grip than you should have with the 22. It, you always know because it affects your accuracy. But um, one guy wrote in and said he practiced with a 22 long enough that when he shot his 45, it damn near came out of his hands. I've never had that problem, but I do notice a definite uh, difference sometimes when I've lightened the grip up a little bit. Anyway, good call. Uh, sorry you have that problem. We'd love to have you uh, in a, a more liberty-oriented state someday and join us here. Until then, um, do the best you can with what you got, man. Let's take another call. Jack, I have a question about composting and or making fertilizer using uh, fish remains. I do a lot of fishing. Uh, that being said, a lot of it's catfish. So there's a lot of material left over um, after we fillet the fish. But I wanted to know is what can I do so I can use this material uh, basically to turn it into fertilizer. Thanks a lot. Love the show. Oh, by the way, if I didn't mention this, is Joe in Tennessee. Thanks. Bye. Well, fish fish make great compost. Very, very high nitrogen ratio. They have a, a ratio of like two to five, three to six, somewhere in there, two and a half to five and a half, somewhere like that, if I remember right, of a, a carbon nitrogen ratio. So that means, you know, roughly five to six parts of nitrogen for every two parts of carbon. So they're a tremendous source of nitrogen, which means if we're going to compost fish waste, we need to provide quite a bit of carbon to go with it, or we're going to get an awful lot of stink. So here's the issue for you with fish. They do stink, and they need to be covered. And you need to think about what you're doing when you compost it because it will attract things like raccoons and possums. An easy way to do this is to take a garden bed, especially one that you're not really doing a lot with right now, and just dig a bunch of little holes and put a couple pieces in each hole and cover it. 
Uh, that works great, unless you have a lot of raccoon, fox, etc. activity in your, your garden. And then expect to come out and find a bunch of holes and a bunch of the fish taken away and eaten. Um, it, you have, if you're not, if you put it in an inactive bed, like a bed that's getting a rotation or something, it's not that big a deal. And boy, you got supercharged stuff when you go to grow in there. Uh, if you bury it deep enough, you'll, you'll mitigate that problem. But foxes especially, um, they, they have that keen nose and they know it's down there and they'll go for it. And if you go too deep, you can actually slow down the decomposition. You don't want to be more than about, I'd say about a foot deep is about as deep as you want to go. And you're better off with about six inches of cover. And six inches of good, six to eight inches of cover will keep the snake down. If you're going to do it more like a compost heap style, you need to be putting, if you're putting in a pound of fish, right, you probably need, jeez, man, I'd say about 20 pounds of some kind of carbon source. Right, maybe ten, maybe ten pounds of car. I've never done it that way. I've only done it with like direct berry method. Now, what I, what I used to do for my grandmother as a kid, and wasn't real hard to get me to do either, is I'd go up to a little little dam and I'd fish for sunfish. I catch these fish that were about you know four or five inches long, and I'd bring home enough of them, one for every rose bush, one for each grapevine. And I'd go and I'd dig a little hole and stick their little corpses in there and bury them. And she had the most amazing Concord grapes. And the most beautiful roses you've ever seen in your life. And that was the only fertilization that those things ever got. And they were awesome. So it definitely works. Direct berry works. Molly concern is predators. Now, we had a lot of possum and raccoon uh, around the area where they lived. And we never had, they never had them dug up. So I think that making sure they're buried sufficiently. And I would dig this. She had a way she wanted me to do it where I'd dig it on like a 45-degree angle. So I'd start away from the plant and dig it toward the center of the plant. So that way it was almost like putting one of them uh, fertilizer spikes in there. And I, I think I used to dig those holes about six inches, and, and we didn't really ever have anything dig them up. But I wasn't using waste. I was using entire small fish. The thing about catfish that gives me a little bit of pause is the waste from catfish, the head, that's a big bone. That's a lot of bone material there. In a commercial operation, that all that waste would go through a grinder and be ground up and then mixed in and, and composted down. So uh, those are my thoughts on there. I'm no expert when it comes to composting fish waste. What I used to do when I did a lot more fishing than I do now, especially fishing with a boat, I fished a lot for catfish like you did, and I fished a lot for a, a fish called white bass or sand bass, we call them in the south. And what I would do is every time I'd fillet my fish, I'd just throw them in a great big bag, all the waste, and throw them in a deep freezer. And uh, I would end up with three or four bags, and I'd go on a trip where I knew I was going to go catfishing, and I'd take three or four bags of that, that stuff, and when they're frozen, it sinks, right? And then it sits in the lake, and it starts to defrost. So I would go take, and each spot that I was going to hit for catfishing, I'd just take all that waste, catfish, white bag, it didn't matter what it was, they don't care, and I'd throw it in that spot as chump. And then I'd come back to those spots and fish those spots. And it, it did a really good job of bringing in channel cats. Uh, it was great for bringing in channel cats. And they eat themselves. They're cannibalistic. They don't care. Um, and, and that was actually the way that I got rid of my fish waste by putting it. Now, some states that might be illegal to even have that on your boat. You need to check. It, it really might be illegal to ha have that on your boat. I always figured I was clean because it was... Um, identifiable waste. In other words, the head and tail and, and usually the skin hangings were still there and I consciously made sure that I never had more than would be considered a limit, you know, even though you'd have to have a really brain dead game warden to try to 
do that. And you also have to make sure that chumming is legal in your state. There are states where you can chum all you want, and there are states where you cannot chum. Uh, in Pennsylvania, you, you get caught chumming trout. It's a, it's a violation. You're gonna, you're gonna ruin your day. Uh, let's put it to you that way. It's gonna ruin your day. You chum in Texas, nobody cares. So, you gotta check that. But that's another use if you don't want to use them for fertilizer. But give it a shot. But I would do this. I would try doing it on a smaller scale first and making sure you don't have any problems with predators or stink. And if that works, kind of scale up from there. Let's take, I think we got one more call today. Hi, Jack. This is Mike in Southern Ohio. I'm hoping you can help us out with a little bit of inspiration and maybe stop the depression that's been setting in somewhat. The wife and I are looking to sell our typical suburban cul-de-sac house and get something between 5 and 20 acres outside city limits. Unfortunately, everything we're finding in the area that we're in is about 8 acres of just perfectly manicured lawn. And that's really not what I want. I want something, you know, partly wooded and some other features. So, since I don't want to spend 8 to 10 hours a week and miss my kids growing up, spending all the time cutting grass and mowing, waiting for anything I plant and trees to plant and mature, uh, what would you do with 8 acres of grass? How would I manage that land and put something on there useful that can produce for us? Thanks very much, Jack. Well, on some levels, I'm thinking, well, how exciting. How exciting. Clean slate to work from. You can build your food forest, your forage forest, your fuel forest, all that great stuff any way that you want to. Um, the first thing before I go forward, I'm going to say, is make sure wherever you're buying that all this stuff I'm about to say you can do without somebody complaining or ordinances or pains in the asses or stuff like that. I think once somebody moves out in the country and buys eight acres, they should be able to pretty much do what they want with it as long as they're not really harming anything. But um, you never know. You never know. There's people that move out there. That's why that freaking eight acres of manicured grass is there. Okay, solution number one. All you have to do is go listen to episode 910. That was only three episodes ago. Mike Canaday on goats. Get yourself some goats. Get yourself some portable electric fencing. Move your goats around in paddocks, and they will take care of all your yard maintenance for you. They will manure the hell out of it, and they will help you with the process of bringing it towards secession, toward reforesting parts of it. Um, the next thing I would do is look at, and you got to look at whether you have the budget for this or not, but putting in earthworks. Uh, I would say that if you have eight acres, maybe two acres of it needs to be ponds. There's two acres we don't have to worry about the grass with anymore, right? And then maybe we look at doing some swaling and uh, putting in some forest systems based on the swaling. And if we put in about two acres of forest based on the swaling, now we've got four acres of open country, which we can use for other things, and we can take that forward if we want. This will take time. This will take time. It won't happen overnight. And it's not real cheap to do, but it's not real expensive either. Swales are cheap. An earth mover can come in and do, you know, a kilometer swell in a day for 500 bucks. Uh, dams cost more to do. You might spend eight, nine thousand dollars on a, on a good, you know, one acre dam or more, depending on how the property is. But if we start swelling things, pushing the dam overflow into the swales, if we can take that piece of property and put ourselves a little dam, maybe a tenth of an acre or even smaller at the highest portion of the dam and put in a big major dam, one to two acres down lower, and we can put swale systems in between there. In the dry part of the year, we can just run a pump and pump the water up to the little dam, overflow it, run that through the swales, and we can get very, very quick results with reforestation there. We might even use some nitrogen-fixing trees that other people see as pests like sweet gums and alders to, to speed that process up. 
some of the things that we can do to speed this up and reduce the cost would be to go and put in a decent greenhouse and a decent screened shaded house so you can do a lot of starting of your own plants and trees and bushes because that way you can get a lot more plantings done for the buck and you can do this project over time. But if it was just I want to be able to maintain the grass, goats. I mean, and the, the cool thing is I would have been leaning that way, but I wouldn't have been as confident in the recommendation as I am now after just having Mike on. So had I got to your call last week, I wouldn't have been able to give you as good as an answer. But listen to episode 910 with Mike Canada if you haven't already, and I think you'll see that there's a great opportunity for you there. But I wouldn't get depressed. I would get excited. Because it gives you the opportunity to truly design something special. And start thinking, you know, about spending your time with your kids. Spend with your time with your kids, not mowing the lawn, of course, but teaching them how to do that. And actually, think about it this way. Hopefully this is a place you'll leave to your children. You're building your children a forest. Think about that. You're building your children a forest of their own that they'll own someday. How can you be depressed when you're building a forest for your children. What a great thought. And that was the, when I first heard you say we're depressed, I thought you were going to tell me something difficult. I thought you were going to tell me that you couldn't afford the properties or you couldn't sell your house. That is hard to figure out right now. If you can get that done, then the opportunity is unlimited. In the words of Bill Mollison, the field lies open to the intellect. So permaculture is designed to fix the problem that you have. So embrace it. Uh, it might even be worth bringing in somebody as a design consultant to work with you and, and get it done a little bit faster. But there's so much that can be done. You could go in and put in these big hygge culture beds and create kind of these outdoor living spaces if you look at what was done up in Montana by Seth Holzer. You have a tremendous opportunity. I would still caveat that with do try to find a place with some already forested land on it. That would be ideal. If you could find eight acres even with two that's already in forest, that's great. But here's what you'll find. If you find land that's really heavily forested and it's not forested with the type of trees that you really want to utilize, you'll find yourself, like I am right now, looking at it and going, I, I, I want to cut this down because I want to, I want to cut this you know, one-acre clearing and I want to put you know, something in there that's more useful to me. But I can't do it. I can't justify it. It will take so long to replace this 25 years worth of regrowth that you'll wish you had more open space. Because once it's open already, now you're the repairer. You're the architect instead of somebody taking it down. And there's places to take forests down to replant other things. Lawton says, if I have to take down 15 to 20-year-old regrowth that's just hodgepodge, mishmash, or regrowth pioneering species to put in dams, I'll do it because the dams will bring in so much more diversity than the regrowth forest, especially if I leave some of the regrowth forest around it. But when I look at like my particular property right now, I go, it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right to do that. But again, I want to say the words for you so you think about it. You're building a forest for your children if you start with a blank slate like that. That doesn't sound like something to be depressed about. That sounds like something exciting. And hopefully we're all building things for our children. But I'll tell you what, you want to feel uplifted, build a forest for your kids. That sounds awesome. That sounds like a great way to end the show. So with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Sing.